Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today joined by my friend Chad. How are you, Chad? I am just fine. Just got done celebrating a nice cultish-type weekend. Uh, yes, the 4th of July, and so we are actually recording this on uh, the 6th, yeah. <laughs> almost forgot what day it was. So we're recording this. Yep. Recording this on July 6th. So uh, fresh from the 4th of July weekend. And today we're going to be tackling another film. And this one is on Netflix. It was called the five deadly venoms. And this is a movie that I was always interested in seeing. And let me give you a little bit of a backstory. I've mentioned before here and there that I used to work at a Boy Scout camp. And one of my coworkers there, he was really crazy about this film. He was, you know, talk about it, how much he loved it. And however, he apparently he misremembered it because he always called it the attack of the seven deadly venoms. So I remember there were times when I was like just browsing through like Hulu or Netflix, I would look for attack of the seven deadly venoms. But eventually on Netflix, I found Five Deadly Venoms. And when I read the synopsis, I'm like, okay, that is the movie he was talking about. All right. So it's a nice little kung fu movie that was created by the Shaw Brothers who created, I think it was like, uh, I'm wanting to say they did close to a thousand films. Wow. yeah, they, they were active for a very long time, and a lot of the films that they did, they fell into a category of of a martial arts film called Wuxia. I might be mispronouncing that. I apologize if I'm uh, mispronouncing it. It's like spelled like X-U-I-X-A. I... I said, I do apologize. I don't remember exactly how it's, uh, I don't know exactly how it's pronounced. W-U-X-I-A. That's how it's, it's spelled. And what Wuxia mean is it translates something to the effect of martial hero. And a lot of these, of these films, they took place in usually ancient China. And what differentiated these from a lot of the other martial arts movies that were popular back in the the 60s or 70s or so is the fact that these wuxia films they tended to not only were they they set in ancient china usually they incorporated various fantasy or mystical elements to them where if you compare that to a film like have you ever seen bruce lee's enter the dragon Yes. You know, you compare it to like Enter the Dragon, pretty realistic as far as martial arts films goes. Right, right. You know, he's not like jumping 50 feet in the air and then, uh, you know, coming down with a punch with his hand engulfed in flames. I said very realistic as far as the violence and the fighting that is pictured. Whereas these Wuxia films, they usually did incorporate, they, they pictured martial arts as being very mystical. Okay. And I think part of the reason for that is we got to kind of look back at how, you know, martial arts came to the West. It started out with a lot of the immigrants that were usually coming to like California and on the West coast to work in, you know, the, the mines or various industries. Right. And these, these immigrants, they brought with them their various, martial arts, but they usually didn't have public schools. Um, another thing that was common is some of these, these, these instructors, they would not teach their martial arts to Westerners. Now, I'm not sure if it specifically was like that with Kung Fu, or at least some of the styles of Kung Fu, mm-hmm. um, but uh, with Eskrima. Uh, one of the martial arts I've studied for a, a few years was Anayan Eskrima. And I remember when I had a chance to attend a seminar by the grandmaster of that style, uh, Mike and I, he was mentioning this to us that, yeah, early on with Eskrima, 
you didn't teach it to non-Filipinos. And he was one of the few, well, he, before there were some others before him, uh, Danny Inosanto and Angel Cabales are two of the ones that I can name off the top of my head, but they were actually opening up their schools to non-Filipinos. And not everyone in the, you know, in the uh, the Filipino communities back then appreciated it because it's like, this is something from our culture. This is sacred to us. You don't share it with outsiders. And I believe Kung Fu was kind of along the same veins where there were some people in the Chinese communities back then that felt that you shouldn't teach it to these, these Westerners. Which kind of makes sense. It's a, you know, it's a hidden thing that, that they share amongst themselves, you know, uh, a traditional thing um, that they wouldn't want to go outside. I mean, it's, you can kind of think of it, at least to me, it seems like, like a family tradition. Like, you know, you know, your family every year on Thanksgiving does this, you know, and these people are included and these people are not. You don't start inviting those people in for whatever reason. You know what I mean? Yes. And I think that attitude did help. Uh, it did help give us some of the the folklore around Kung Fu. Are you familiar with the term dim mock? I'm not. Um, it, full disclosure on this, what I know about Kung Fu and anything surrounding Kung Fu came from David Carradine. <laughs> yep. Have you ever, did you ever see the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, Kickboxer? You know, I haven't. Okay. What he was doing in there, that was Dimmock. And like they had this one test that they made him do where they had some bricks that were stacked up and he was told, okay, you know, we want you to hit this and the, you know, like the fourth one from the bottom on the left-hand side has to break. And he was able to do that because the, you know, supposedly what he was doing is he was focusing his energy and sending out his chi, which is essentially life force. Mm -hmm. I, to make an analogy, well, in, in Japanese martial arts, they tend to call it ki, it's kind of like, in a way, it's kind of like the force from uh, Star Wars. Right. You know, it's this energy that flows through all living things. And supposedly people who are masters of different martial arts, they could do things with this, this energy. And one of them was like, again, they could make it travel through these bricks and break only the one that they want to break. Mm -hmm. And one of the, another thing that maybe you're familiar with, well, Actually, they kind of discussed this a little bit in first edition Dungeons and Dragons. They had the monk class, and one of the abilities that they had was the vibrating palm, where you know you caught you hit your opponent, and it caused the vibrations to go through his body just right, so it would stop his heart and kill him instantly. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I think there was a movie called like Five Finger Death Punch or something that was based around that, mm -hmm. and Kill Bill. Um, I, I actually called it when we were doing our episode on tropes uh, back in episode 100. I mistakenly referred to it as the five finger death punch, but I was looked it up afterwards. It was actually called things like the five hand exploding heart technique, where or five step exploding heart technique, where once you did this technique on someone, they would walk five steps and then their heart would explode, and that's the move that the bride used to kill Bill. And the one of the reasons I think we have this rich folklore and, well, these urban legends about martial arts and martial artists being able to do this thing is that some of these masters intentionally kept an air of mystique and mystery around their arts. Uh, one of my old martial arts instructors, you know, because one day we were talking about pressure points. Mm -hmm. that's another one of those martial arts urban legends where, you know, supposedly you hit a pressure point and it paralyzes someone or you hit a certain sequence of pressure points in a certain amount of time and it kills that person an hour later. Now, don't get me wrong. There are legitimate pressure point techniques. These are usually ones that are used to cause pain or discomfort to someone and Usually they're very effective in self-defense situations where like if someone is grabbing you on the shoulder 
or someone is grabbing your wrist, you know, you hit some of these pressure points, it causes them, you know, enough pain and discomfort where it might help you break the hold. Right. So those types of, of pressure points, those are real. Those are legitimate. But yeah, as far as the ones where supposedly you touch someone in a certain place and then, you know, they, they die 12 hours later. I, as far as I know, those are pretty much just a myth. There's no documented cases of that ever actually happening. And I know my, one of my old martial arts instructors was like, you know, in all the classes I've done over the years, I've been hit in so many pressure points that I have a feeling that if that was true, I probably would be dead by now. But that makes sense. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about how we came to uh, learn a little bit about Kung Fu and martial arts. All right, fair enough. Because I believe you said that, because uh, you were saying that you used to watch Kung Fu. Yeah, Kung Fu with David Carradine. Yeah, and I never, I never actually watched that series. I think I saw like part of one episode because I know they did uh, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. Okay. Which was David Carradine's character and his son. I just like saw like part of an episode or two. So it's not something I really got into. Before going to college, most of my experience with Kung Fu came when they would have, uh, you know, the action movies on usually on the weekend on Saturday or Sunday afternoon. So if I didn't have anything better to do when I was flipping through the channels, sometimes I remember seeing these Kung Fu movies where these guys were, you know, jumping up in the air and flying, you know, 50 feet in the air and doing spins and all sorts of crazy things. Okay. Yeah, see, and and Kung Fu was not like that. Um, in fact, there were some times that Kung Fu got extremely boring because David Carradine's character would sit in the middle of a floor in the middle of this hut and just talk, basically. And, you know, like I said, when we were talking before the before we started recording, my dad really liked this series for some reason. I watched it because from a very early age, I have been a TV hound. I mean, there, there's just no other way to put it. I'll, I'll, I like watching TV. I, I find the... You know, and as I get older, it becomes more and more, I'm more and more selective about what I watch, but I now have the ability to be more selective about what I watch. You know, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, if dad was home, you watched what dad wanted to watch. Yep. And didn't have a second TV. You didn't have iPads or whatever, laptops to go play on that. Just that, that technology wasn't around yet. Yeah. You we're going to sound like a couple old men here, but yeah, you kids don't know how good you have it where, you know, and it's not even just being able to watch uh, stuff like Netflix or Hulu on your, you know, on your computer or your phone or your a tablet, but some game consoles like the Wii U, you can download the Hulu and the, the Netflix apps for that. And you can watch it on the tablet controller. So that's something my son will do occasionally. If like my wife and I want to watch TV, you know, he'll take the tablet controller and he'll go, you know, in his room and watch something on Netflix. Right. So yeah, because yeah, back then, I mean, for most of my childhood, we only had one TV. And of course, what mom and dad wanted to watch, that's what we were watching. Right. And do you remember this? And I, this is really going to make us sound like an old man, but. The president's on. He's on every channel. Yep. Jeff Foxworthy. Yeah. He doesn't act, I remember, from a long time ago, or he was saying that same thing. It's like, you know, remember, we had three channels, and if the president was on, your night was shot. Yep. Yep. You know, and for me, I don't know, I don't know about where you grew up, but for me, we had ABC, we had CBS, we had NBC, we actually got a public broadcast, and then if the if the world was tilted just right and the sunspots were just where they needed to be in the clouds, we could get WGN out of Chicago. Okay, yeah, we could we could never get that because the ones I remember when I was a kid: ABC, NBC, CBS, and then the public broadcasting PBS. And then there were two other channels. The one that I don't remember the call letters. One of them was channel 18, and I okay. think we had another one that was channel 24, 
Um, those were, I think those were the UHF channels though, where sometimes the reception was a little spotty. Channel 18 was the one I remember watching because that's the one that had like the, a lot of the after school uh, cartoons that I would, I would usually watch. And that one I know was based out of Milwaukee. So usually the reception was pretty good, but I, I think there was another one. I, I'm wanting to say it was channel 24 where, you, you know, again, it, it was a little further out or it was something with the frequency it was broadcasting on where, yeah, sometimes if the sunspots were in the wrong position, you were not getting very good reception. Yeah. Our NBC station was actually UHF and you're right. If, if, if it was wrong, whatever the air was too heavy or whatever, you didn't get it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it, we, we came from a different time too, where your options aren't as varied as they are now. Exactly. And you remember, well, some of you, my long-time listeners might remember a while ago, my friend Steve and I did a two-part series about changing technology. And one of the things that we remembered was uh, cable TV, how it used to be that usually a, a standard cable package might ha- only have about 30 channels, 30, 40 channels on it. Oh, yeah. Where nowadays, even basic cable usually is going to give you at least twice that. Yep. I remember my dad got cable when it was brand new. Um, we were one of the first people in the neighborhood to actually have cable. And it took you from three or four stations. We had 18. <laughs> Which must have seemed like an incredible amount of variety. Oh, yeah. I mean, you had everything. It was like we could get a Fox station, which was not possible before that, you know, I could get up every morning and watch WGN. I could watch Bozo the Clown every morning because I didn't have to have the the air pressure just right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, because of course, remember we had the old. Uh, they had the old uh, boxes that had the little clicker on it, yep. and those were wired in directly, hardwired into the cable box. And you know, it usually came with like about a fifteen foot cord or so. Oh, see, we didn't even have that. My dad's remote control was hitting one of us in the side of the head and going, "Go change the channel." <laughs> That's good. So, yeah, ah, uh, yes, how times have changed, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, we can stop being old men now. Yep. You young whippersnappers. Okay. Uh, no more old man voice for now. So, but back to the the topic at hand, and of course, one of the things that you remember from watching a lot of these old Kung Fu movies. And even if you watched anime a lot when you were a kid, uh, cause we did have some of the old anime series like uh, Robotech and speed racer Voltron. One of the things we always remember, of course, was the dubbing. Dubbing. And you know, I was a little disappointed this one did not have dubbing on it. It had it had subtitles. Yeah, and that's one of the things that was kind of fun about watching some of these old dubbed movies is I, we didn't realize it at the time, but we were just kind of wondering, it's okay, how come their mouths aren't moving in, in sync with what they're saying? Mm-hmm. And it it has to do with the challenges of localizing something where you try to translate a script from one language to another because well you for example you might have a sentence or an idea that might take five seconds to properly convey in Chinese but in English you might be able to get the same idea across in only three seconds so you've got okay you've got to somehow stretch three seconds worth of dialogue to fill five seconds Yep. Or sometimes it's worse. Like you might have a, a sentence that takes like 10 seconds to properly say in the original language, but you, you know, you might need say 12 or 15 seconds to do the same thing in English. So if you're trying to convey 15 seconds worth of information into like 10 seconds, then usually the actors are going to have to talk really fast or sometimes the translations seem kind of strange. Yep. Yep, because you might drop a word or, uh, uh, you know, a non-needed word like the or or and or something like that. And then to our English-speaking ears, it's said the, the, the meaning is still there, but it sounds odd. Yep. 
We didn't have to worry about that with Five Deadly Venoms, though, because this, as we said, this movie was subtitled. So one of the best movies you'll ever read, right? You know, I, I, I'll tell you right up front. I was impressed. I didn't think I would like this movie when I read what it was about, you know, the little blurb on Netflix. And when I was sitting down to watch it and, and honestly for the first five minutes with the teacher in the, in the uh, teapot. Teacher in a teapot. (laughs) Teacher in a teapot. Okay. Well, isn't that kind of what it looked like? I don't know exactly. Some sort of steaming vessel. Yeah, that's, that's what it was like. And we'll get to that in a moment, but go ahead. But uh, I thought, oh, thought, what is Al doing to me? This is going to be an hour and 37 minutes of pure torture. Thankfully, I was wrong. After yes. that first five minutes, once you got rid of the teacher, and I, and I don't even think it was his acting or anything like that. I think it was just poorly written. The so, movie got a whole lot better. Yeah. So would you say this movie was at least better than Revenge of the Bridesmaids? Well, when we find that one, Al, that'll be the last episode we do. (laughs) Yes. So on to Five Deadly Venoms. So the plot of this movie is, again, it takes place in uh, China long ago. And you've got the dying master of the Poison Clan. And he has his last student, Yang. He makes him uh, promise him that he's going to go complete this mission. Now, he describes how he used to have five students. And the Poison Clan, they had these five different martial arts that they would do. And this is something that you do see in real-world martial arts, where usually there's some of them, they're named after a certain animal. And what your your fighting demeanor and your, your movements, they're supposed to duplicate that that animal uh let me give you an example my the particular style i studied tiger claw kung fu now the 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 style i studied it wasn't like okay you were trying to look like a tiger it was more trying to uh to to mimic the 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 demeanor of the tiger fast and powerful strikes and also uh, a lot of grasping and ripping motions, like one of the the fists we learned was the tiger claw, which is usually used to, you know, grab and rake. Okay. And you find this in other martial arts, like, for example, um, in, like crane styles, they might focus a little bit more on developing your balance. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, a style that is named after a certain animal is only going to use stances that are based on one t- on just that animal right again the tiger claw form i studied uh, the some of the other stances we learned were cobra dragon and crane you could use them in some of the fighting techniques we learned in the forms but their primary pur- purpose for these was to help develop lower body strength and flexibility yeah and when i was doing i i actually studied pasaru for a short amount of time which is a Korean martial art. And we did the stances too. There was the, you know, there was the riding horse. There was yep. the, uh, there was, uh, of course, now that I'm talking about it, I can't think of it, but there was like the riding horse. There was like the crane. There was a few other, you know, stances that were mimicked after animals. So I get what you're saying with the tiger claw. Yeah. And in this case though, for the, the poison clan, it wasn't necessarily copying the the entire stance of the animal, but it was their fighting style. It allowed them to develop certain unique skills. It took something about each of the the styles that mimicked something from the creature. Yes, and now the master is telling Yang that he wants him to go on this mission because he fears one of his five students has started to turn to evil, uh, turn to the dark side, I guess you could say. And again, this throws back to episode 100, where one of the cliches that we see in these types of films is an elderly martial arts master, and usually he has a renegade student. In this case, well, when we were saying teacher in a teapot, 
Uh, he was soaking in some sort of boiling cauldron, probably like a hot bath. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was weird too because he's like, "Hurry!" and the guy stands up and he takes boiling water and pours it straight on him. <laughs> yep. I'm like, "Wow, that's that's an odd therapy," but okay. Yeah, and so then we get this is where we get our exposition where the the master tells Yang about these five students. And of course it would be challenging to to go find them because they wore masks and not only that, they changed their names. So not only did poor Yang have no idea what these men looked like, he also didn't know what their names were. And I do admit I have a hard time keeping the names straight. So we'll probably just be referring to them by the animal that they Yeah, the names the names would escape me, but Yeah. So first I, I think it's important to mention here too that the teacher, which I don't think we ever learned the teacher's name, um, is teaching Yang all five of the types of kung fu that he has taught only one type to each of the other five. Yep, that's correct. And he was mentioning though that even though he knew a little bit about each style, that wouldn't be enough because these martial artists were so powerful and so strong that he would need to team up with one of them. Right. So the first one, and we get a little exposition here because uh, the teacher is taking Yang into this old uh, training facility that looks like it hasn't been used in a while. And he takes them to all these stations where it flashes back showing the different uh, students and showing them practicing their, their style. Correct. So the first one we had was the centipede. So this one was very fast and mixed offenses with defense. And it was said that his striking is so fast, it seemed as if a hundred arms or legs were striking you. And this is why it was called centipede. Right. Next we had snake which this is something that is common in in a lot of martial arts, or not really necessarily martial arts, but in some styles of Kung Fu, like the, again, the style I studied, two of the fists we had, there was the Cobra Fist and Snake Fist, and the, the Cobra Stance, I said, well, it was used to, you know, to help develop lower body strength and flexibility. In combat, you would use it if you were going to be doing a spinning movement, like a spinning back fist, because it's right. supposed to be like a cobra that's or a snake that's all you know all coiled back and ready to strike and has all this power just waiting to be unleashed. Right, but now I gotta ask this because you've studied kung fu. The the attack with the two fingers, you know, like because he said one hand was like the head and the other hand was like the tail. Would you actually strike somebody like that? Not in the, really the style I studied. The The cobra fist was more using the, the thumb and the index finger and middle finger. That was used... Well, the, the snake fist, it, it's kind of along the same idea where it's, it's used to find... Vul, to, it's used to strike soft, squishy, vulnerable areas. Mm-hmm. Like said, the cobra fist, usually it's a good one to use against an attacker's throat. Right. And the snake fist one that we learned was actually with just using the index and the middle finger. So it was, I guess you could say it was kind of like what they were doing in here where. Uh, Are you the, looking for like pressure points? Is that the idea? Yes. Uh, Cause these, these particular types of fists, they're used mostly against, like I said, soft squishy areas like the throat, the eyes, um, you know, some of the pressure points that you can get on the arm. Right. So, right. It could kind of mimic the same thing where, again, the cobra fist could be like the, the teeth of the snake and then the snake fist would be like the tail. But we didn't do anything with like them, you, you know, using them in unison. Mm-hmm. I, I was just curious because it looks silly. You know, yeah. when, he's, when he's hitting the guy in the forearm with two fingers and it's like, what, what are you trying to do there? But then later in the movie, and I, and I might be killing your, your plans here, but later in the movie, he kills the one guy by sticking four fingers into his abdomen, you know? Yeah, and again, it's supposed to represent the, the fangs of the snake sinking into just the right place. Um, so that's what I think they're trying to get at when they're doing one hand. It's, it's like making the, um, you know, you've got 
the, the you know the index finger and middle finger they're they're curled in but they're split apart so again that's the fangs of the snake and then the other one it looked like he was more striking with the middle finger right and he, and he had the middle finger i tell someone to f off that way <laughs> but <laughs> you know but he he was using more of the middle finger as opposed to like the index or the ring fingers and that was representing the snake's tail right so also it was shown that he could fight very well when he was on his back Yes, very agile. Yep. So next we had the scorpion. And this is where it, it focused a lot on kicks because they show him when he's doing this, the flashback thing where they have him doing all these fancy kicks high in the air and, and yeah, breaking targets. Yeah, he can targets. jump high and kick. Now, I don't know about scorpions. I, I, you know, I've never seen one in real life. I don't know if they can jump or not. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they can. Okay, so I, I guess I got kind of lost on that style, why it would be called the scorpion. Yeah, and I think it's supposed to be with, like, the foot being able to strike with the power of a scorpion sting, where if you okay. hit in just the right place, it'll kill or paralyze someone, and yeah, then the I, arms... Okay, I see that, I see that, okay. Yeah, and then the arms were supposed to be more like the... And I, I remember catching this part where the arms are supposed to be more like the you know, the pinchers of the scorpion. Okay. Which, yeah, I'm not sure how that works, because I think the way scorpions usually hunt is they grab something with the pinchers and then strike it with the tail. I, I suppose you could do that in real life, like grab someone on the shoulders and then kick them in the, you know, kick them in the jimmies with the with your foot, but... Yep. Yep, so that is the uh, scorpion. Next, we had the lizard, and... I thought this was kind of cool because he could do the stuff like running and walking up walls and sticking onto the walls. Yep, yep. I thought that was kind of cool too. And then finally we had Toad, which this one was kind of strange because you think, okay, Toad, well, they catch flies. So you might think something like, you know, lightning fast striking, right? Right. Nope. <laughs> yep. This one was actually primarily defensive where – you know, you can resist just about any weapon and it shows the, the toad using it, his body to like, you know, press against spikes and, you know, sharp objects, but he doesn't he get was, hurt. Yeah, he was blocking sword, sword attacks with his forearms. Yep. So that was his primary thing where, uh, you know, more defense where, yeah, not, you really got to hit hard, or actually you got to hit him in just the right area in order to be able to hurt him. You know, so it's kind of like Achilles from Greek mythology, where he was almost invincible, but he had that one weak spot in his in his ankle. Yeah, and, and that was the thing, is they kept talking about trying to break his kung fu. And I don't know if that was just a bad translation, um, but... You know, they ended up breaking his Kung Fu. Well, actually, Scorpion did with some little throwing devices. Yeah, and, and we're getting ahead of ourselves. But, yeah, that's how what they did when they were trying to break his Kung Fu because his Kung Fu was essentially making him almost invincible. So you had they had to strike him with these uh, darts in just the right place in order to break his Kung Fu, in other words, expose his weakness. Right. Because supposedly each one of these, as we find out, uh, most of these five styles have some sort of weakness. The only one that we don't really learn much about a weakness for is Lizard. They don't say anything about what Lizard's weakness is. and. Right. And there's a reason for that, but we'll get to that. Yes. And Scorpion, again, they really don't uh they really don't go too much into his weakness uh either. But Centipede, Snake, and Toad do have very, very definite weaknesses. Yep. So when the after the master makes him uh promise that he's going to go and bring the you know, find out which one of his his students is being a threat to the you know to the community uh, we Yang has to go to find their identities and their whereabouts. Now, one of the things that I was kind of surprised is really for most of the movie, they don't really focus very much on Yang. Right. Because a lot of the interaction is between the between the five uh, the five Venoms. 
Well, and then that happy kid. What was his name? Um, was he the one that was the witness? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I remember the name. It began with an M. Meng? Not Meng. Um, no, it was like oh. Mara, Mara. It, well, it was, we'll it was, just... Yeah, we'll just call him M. How about that? Yeah, we'll call him M because we know... I We remember his name started with an M. It's just we can't remember the name right now. I think it was like Momfa or something, but uh, it began with an M, so that we'll call him M. That works. Yeah. So... Another thing that the master makes him promise is that we also find out that the the poison clan managed to gather a lot of money. So that also plays an important part later on in the movie. But when we get to the movie, we meet that there's uh, these two police officers, one of them a very serious demeanor, very by the book. And then you had the other one who um, was more of a happy-go-lucky type cop. So one of the the thing that really sets the events for the movie in motion, though, is when you find there's a you find that two of the the students, the centipede and the snake, they break into the house of the wealthy man, and this is the one who had the the poison clan's money, right. and they murder the entire family. And however, they're not able to find the actual money. Scorpion comes in after they leave. And finds the the uh, where is it a little map? To yes. The treasure. Yeah, because the when the man who the the head of this clan when he was dying after a scorpion and centipede left, he grabbed a candle. Yep. And then when scorpion enters, who you know wearing his mask, he finds the candle and he breaks it, and that's where he notices there's this little map inside, which presumably shows where the poison clan's money is. Right. And unfortunately for Centipede and Snake, there is a witness, and this is M. And he he reports this to the police, and they eventually enlist uh, the, one of the police officers, the younger, happy-go-lucky guy. He enlists the help of his friend, who later we find out is Toad. Correct. And Toad confronts Centipede, and they get in this fight in the street, and then that's when they finally capture him, and they're able to bring him to before the judge. And then M is called in front of the judge as well, and points his finger at Scorpion. Yep, and this is where we see another one of those cliches we talked about a while ago. Uh, well, we didn't specifically identify it, but we find out that the judge is corrupt. Because he had a, a piece of paper on his desk that had sketches of each of the five venom animals, so that's when he realized that okay, this uh, you know the, the the murderer here was actually one of the five venoms, and apparently he has some sort of deal with them. Because what they do is they they uh, send the one of the the police officers away because he's going to be because he thinks he's going to interfere. But they have M change his testimony to frame Toad instead of Scorpion. Right. So and this- in the process, um, by doing that, once Scorpion is off the hook, Scorpion was it was it Scorpion and Snake that went and killed them? Uh, that killed Toad. Killed M. M. Um, yeah, they would kill him later on in the movie, but it's kind of gruesome what they do with poor Toad. And again, this is that whole breaking his kung fu because um, they have the one of the officers. You know, they they convince Toad to surrender himself because um, you know they because M is changing his testimony. But again, his friend, the policeman, he's like, you know, don't worry, we'll get this sorted out. But he had official business he was sent away on. And this is where they take him into the, you know, he willingly surrenders and they, you know, they put him in a jail cell and they slowly start to gain his trust. But unfortunately, they poison him. Yep. And Snake, I think, was the one who had the idea to put him in the Iron Maiden. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we can hear Bill and Ted out there. Iron Maiden. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. This was one of those points where you kind of that that whole illusion of disbelief that you have going into a show 
And then they show us this Iron Maiden. Yeah. Which was the cheesiest looking thing I have ever seen made out of tinfoil and and penny nails. I mean Yeah, it it, it wasn't exactly the highest uh budget special effect that I think was ever made at this time. <laughs> but they I put, mean I know the movie was made in nineteen seventy eight, but still. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't cover his head either. It was just basically from the neck down. But right. They, they put him in the Iron Maiden, and since Toad's Kung Fu is still strong, he manages to break out because they thought that, okay, he has to have some sort of weak spot. So that's why they put him in there, because they were hoping that one of these spikes would hit his weak spot. Yep. Um, unfortunately, um, he this is where poor Toad is uh, attacked by Snake, who basically is so fast, he kind of gets in, not Snake, Scorpion. Right. Uh, he gets in and he hits him with these darts in his ear. And I don't know about you, but did the something with the the fake blood in this movie was just really goofy. Yeah, it wasn't. It, it wasn't. A, it was the wrong color. Yeah, it almost looked more like pink lipstick. Yeah, and and I was gonna say, and B, it was just it, the consistency was all wrong. Yeah, the. Fake blood effects have definitely come a long way since the seventies, right? Yeah, especially when, after they get him in the Iron Maiden the second time after he's they broke his kung fu, and he comes out with all those little marks on him. <laughs> yeah, that was almost comical. It was almost comical. It's like they took a bunch of bottles of nail polish and dabbled, uh, you know, these little reddish pink splotches all over him. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was bad. But anyway, so so. They break his kung fu with these little throwing scorpion dart things. And then one of the strangest things in the movie that still doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me is, so Toad pulls them out of his ears, and I'm still not sure how Scorpion got one in each ear. He's fast. That's really damn fast, I'm telling you. You know, those those cats were fast as lightning. Yeah, that's true. And you know what? As a matter of fact, it was a little bit frightening. (laughs) <laughs> but they did it with expert timing. They were all kung fu fighting. Yes, they were all kung fu fighting. So if you now have that song stuck in your head, I'm sorry. <laughs> but then then Snake walks up to him and sticks his fingers in his ears. And it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and I, I think it's supposed to be that whole thing about how they're you know, they're using, they're breaking his Kung Fu and they have to, you know, hit these pressure points because that takes away his invulnerability. Okay. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. I won't spend very much on it, but I'll buy it. Yeah. And then they, they do the iron jacket on him where they've got this like piece of iron that they heat up and they put on Toad's back and, you know, burn him until he passes out. Yeah. And I don't know. I think the, I th- I think the burn special effects they used on his back looked okay though. Yeah, they did. That actually looked like there was skin peeling and that kind of stuff. So yeah, it, it it looked a lot better than that fake blood effect that they were using. Yeah. So unfortunately, Toad does not die a very glamorous death though, because what they end up doing is uh, one of the prison guards and his assistant they go in and essentially they suffocate him. Yeah. Um, because it's like they they put a bunch of water on his face and then start putting uh, sheets of paper on his face so that he wouldn't be able to breathe. And then they made it look like he hung himself. Yeah. Yeah. Not glamorous at all. Yeah. And that's where I, I don't know. I I think they could have did more with the toad character. It would have been nice if they would, would have given him a little bit more dramatic or heroic of a death. Yeah. It it almost kind of reminded me, um, so what was the third Matrix movie? Uh, Matrix Revolutions? Or... Yes. Yep. Was it Revolution? Yeah, second one was Reloaded. Third one yep. was Revolution. Reloaded and then Revolution. Yeah, it's like, remember Trinity? It's like, you know, we inter- she's introduced as this total badass fighter, and then it's like she goes out being impaled by a, a piece of metal. Yep. So yeah, poor Toad, he gets a very unglamorous death. And that's when we finally, you know, we, that's when lizard gets back and he finds out that, you know, his friend has been killed and, uh, you know, centipede, of course, he's been acquitted of the murder charges. So him and snake go and kill M as well as the, you know, the corrupt officer that was 
that, uh, that working with them. Code. Yeah, and this is where we find out that uh, where Yang finds out that one of the policemen, the happy-go-lucky one, was actually Lizard. Yep. So after identifying him, he takes him to his little training spot where they, they work on their strategy, and they go a little bit more into some of the weaknesses. Like with, they figure out with uh, Centipede, in order for them to defeat him, one of them has to attack high and the other one has to attack low. Right. Because apparently while he's extremely fast, he can only defend from one direction or another. And then they had the other plan on Snake, where it's like they had to strike each of his arms from above at an angle at a certain way. Right. Because again, supposedly Snake's strength is coming from the fact that both of his arms are working in unison. So if you manage to separate them, it's like cutting a snake in half. Right. And then the scorpion, they had to attack the head. Yeah. And they, I believe with that, they were trying to imply that really the only thing for, yeah, for scorpion is they had to let him bring the fight to them as opposed to them bringing the fight to him. Right. So it's like they had almost had to wait for him to make his move. Yeah. But this is where um, after Yang and the uh, and the lizard ally themselves, they go, go to confront Centipede and Snake. They meet up with the uh, with a lizard superior officer who he found that, well, he quit the police force and he's going to come with them. And then they track him down to where their their little hideout is. And they engage in this dramatic fight, and that's where we find one of our plot twists where, you know, because up to this point, we've only seen Scorpion with a mask. Correct. But we find out that that police officer was actually Scorpion. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yep. Nice little plot twist there. So, I don't, did you see that one coming, or did you have any, um, did you have any suspicions that that officer might be Scorpion? No, I had no idea who Scorpion was. I thought they did that very well. Yeah, I did too. Um, but what I did see coming is when when Scorpion was revealed, and I can't remember if it was. I think it was Snake said to him, "So your your plan all along was to kill all of us and keep the money for yourself." And he's like, "A uh, duh." Yeah, because <laughs> what I the point where I started to wonder if uh, Scorpion was or that officer was actually Scorpion, is because when Yang and Lizard go to fight Centipede and Snake, he's kind of hanging back. I mean, he says he's going to help him, but he's just kind of sitting back watching. Yeah, and see, up until the point where Scorpion was revealed to be this other officer, I actually thought it was M. Hmm. That was my thought, that, that this whole nervous Nelly kind of thing was a cover. Yeah, and... I, I understand where you're going with that because remember he did witness it and shortly after he left the scene that's when we see Scorpion right. in his mask go in there to, to investigate. So yeah, I, I thought that was that was good writing there, how they really kept Scorpion's identity secret until the very end. Yep, yep. I thought that was well done. So of course at the conclusion we finally have Yang and Lizard defeating the the other three. And they retrieve the map, and they vow that they're going to use the Poison Clan's money to restore their reputation and to try to right some of the wrongs that they'd committed. Yep, and cue happy music and black. <laughs> yep. So you said that you liked this movie a lot more than you thought you you would. Yes. Uh, why was that? Did you think that it would just be really slow moving? Because you said that some of your the old episodes of Kung Fu that you remember were kind of slow-paced. Did you think it was going to be slow-paced like that, or did you think that the fact that it was subtitled was going to take away the enjoyment? Well, no, I, I didn't realize it was subtitled till I was into the movie. You know, I watched it as a kid, but I never have really gotten into the, the whole kung fu kind of thing. I haven't seen Kill Bill, even though, as I have promised you, I will watch it at some point. Yes, it, it, but, it's a good movie. <laughs> I have never seen the Kill Bill movies. I've never, you know, that kind of thing never really played to me. So I figured, well, put together all the facts that it's it's 1978. It's a kung fu movie. You know, it's uh, it's subtitled, which means I it's it's a little it can be difficult at times to try to read everything and watch the action. 
I just didn't think I would enjoy it. But honestly, I came out of it thinking maybe I have to check out some more of these Shaw Brothers things because I really enjoyed it. I thought other than like, like I said, the opening of the movie was really slow paced and kind of boring and kind of like, oh my God. But other than that, I thought it was a well conceived and executed script. Same here. Uh, my only main complaint is, and I think I said this before, is like they didn't really have Yang very active at all during most of the movie. It's like he was kind of coming in and out of the scenes here and there, but he really didn't start to get more active until near the very end. So right. It almost got to the point where there was a few times when I'm like, does this guy even know Kung Fu? <laughs> yeah, because... All he did was walk around and eat a lot. That is true. Um, so... I guess you could say it was almost a very non-cliche type hero because he didn't go in there, you know, fists and feet flying, kicking everyone's butt. He was being very low key. Right. Um, but I did like how they did play on the relationships between these uh, these Venoms as they were trying to figure out who each of them was. Well, I mean, right. And that was something that was talked about early in the movie where Centipede and Snake knew each other in the dojo. They were trained together. Then Scorpion was trained alone, and then Lizard and Toad were trained together. Yeah, I remember catching that where it's like, okay, these two knew each other, these two didn't, no one knew who this one was. Right, and and that's kind of how the whole thing broke out. You know, Scorpion was the loner, Centipede and Snake, and I guess Scorpion were kind of the bad guys, and Lizard and Toad knew each other, and they were kind of the good guys. So, I mean, as far as that went, the way that they broke it out when he was explaining how they were trained and who trained with who, you kind of knew. I mean, at that point, I kind of knew that Scorpion was the bad guy. Now, the fact that they threw that Centipede and Snake were not really good guys either on there, I thought, okay, I get this. You know, it'll kind of even things out because now they got Yang on the good side and they got Scorpion and the other two on the bad side. So, you know, you get that nice six-man tag team thing going on. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but, I don't know, there was enough surprises in this movie that I didn't know where everything was going. What about the fight scenes? What did you think of the actual fighting? I got a feeling it's slower than Kung Fu actually is in practice. Yeah, because in practice, everything is, you know, it's like any fighting style, so not just Kung Fu, but uh, like, you know, karate or taekwondo any sort of striking art, it's not going to be like, okay, I'm going to punch you, and then after you block, I'm going to keep my hand there for a second. I mean, obviously, they're doing that for the camera. But, yeah, I mean, obviously, if it was real, actual fighting, you know, they would be going, you know, a lot faster. And also another thing that, you know, some stuff. And that comes into that whole thing where, like, you were talking about the Bruce Lee movies and even the Brandon Lee movies. Like, when you watch The Crow, that's one of my favorite movies, The Crow. And when he's fighting, I mean, there's times it's hard to follow what he's kicking or punching with. Yeah, and I'm not sure why they do that slow, exaggerated tempo, I guess you could say, in the in this particular movie. And I think some of the other uh, older Kung Fu movies I've seen did that as well. Maybe it, My only thought is maybe the camera wasn't fast enough at the time to catch anything faster. That's true, or it may have just been just to kind of really show you know, the techniques they were using as opposed to the fact that they can, you know, rip out these techniques really quickly. Right. Because when Scorpion, I, and I guess I'm, I'm disproving myself here because when they showed Scorpion just doing his solo, you know, forms or whatever, dude was moving, you know, his hands and feet, they, they really could move quickly. Yeah. So, and- yeah. I don't know why they did the slow exaggerated. I mean, the fight scenes themselves were fine. You know, the only thing that we really didn't have was that slow motion where one of them, lit, like, wipes the bottom of his lip and looks at the back of his hand and sees blood. Yeah. The only thing we were missing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> like, you hit me. I am bleeding. So, on a scale of one to five, what would you rate this movie? I would rate this movie, actually, at about a three and three quarters. Okay. I would definitely sit down and watch it again because I'm sure there's a lot I missed in the one viewing I watched. 
like I said, it, it's got me interested in these Shaw brothers because if they do, if all their stuff is like this, I could kind of get into it. Yeah, and they've made hundreds of movies, so I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of them out there for you to choose from. <laughs> right, right. Now, as a matter of, it's finding them. I mean, like, this one's 1978. If they were around for a long time, you know, did they start in the 50s and end in the 90s? Did Actually, start- the original Shaw Brothers, they started in, like, the 20s, I believe. So they started with, with, with just the beginning of talkies. Yeah. They start, like I said, they've, their movie company has been around for a long time. I mean, you know, I'm pretty, the, the original Shaw brothers aren't actually doing it anymore, but yeah, cause I'm, I'm sure that the three of them probably uh, died some time ago, but um, the, the actual Shaw brothers uh, film company there uh, started in just a moment, looking it up. Okay, it looks like they founded it in 1925, and then they uh, they took over another company in 1958. So, yeah, they've they said well, they've these are, uh, these are these are, for lack of a better word, these are three white boys bringing. Actually, no, they were all Chinese. Really? Yeah, they were. I mean, their last name Shaw. But they're they they were actually based out of Shanghai. Oh, okay. okay. So yeah, they were they were they were Chinese. <laughs> so okay, I didn't realize that was a Chinese last name, but or maybe they Americanized it for distribution purposes. Who knows? Yeah, that I'm not sure, but um, in any case, yeah, they've got tons of movies to to check out. So so you what what do you what do you rate this thing on a one to five? I would probably give it around a four. I liked the fight scenes. I like how they exposed how, you know, there's these different five different styles, each based on an animal. And they've got, you know, they each have their their own weakness that you have to discover. My main complaints about the movie is I wish they would have did a little bit more with Yang. Because if we're supposed to see him as a hero, he's just kind of sulking around in the background through most of it. Right. Now, I understand he has to do a lot of information gathering because... You, you know, the character himself, he doesn't know what these men look like or what their names even are. So it, it does make sense that he would kind of sulk in the shadows, but it would have been nice to see him take a bit more active role. So I'd probably give it about a four, four and a quarter. As okay. I said, overall, I did enjoy it, um, even though, like I said, the main character hero was, it wasn't really doing a heck of a lot through most of the movie. Yeah. I, I recommend that if you got the time, it's an hour and 37 minutes, watch it. You know, if, if you're a Kung Fu fan, you've probably seen it. If you're not, I'm I'm not, <laughs> or I wasn't, or however you want to put it, but I, I really enjoyed it. Yep. So now, Chad, if people want to maybe try to find some of your writings to enjoy, where can they find it? Well, you can find me at, uh, well, I have a blog. It's called Nut Up or Shut Up. Um, you can find me at www.nuosu.blogspot.com. And that's just some daily affirmation kind of stuff that uh, myself and a couple other writers put out there. Or um, also, um, as I've said on past podcasts, uh, I'm one of the organizers for Evercon which uh, our next convention is in January uh, 6th to 8th, 2017, at the uh, Central Wisconsin uh, Convention and Expo Center. We are upgrading. We are getting really close now to opening up event registration. Um, So, you know, keep an eye on that at www.evercon.com. Okay, and, of course, you can find me at... POIGamestudio.com. You can find Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook and YouTube. You can also download episodes of Geekery in general through iTunes. Also, while you're at it, uh, if you are looking for more podcasts to occupy your time with, uh, there's always the Radio Free Borderlands podcast put on by a good friend of mine named Dan. And another one I started listening to recently, a 5th edition live play called Crit Heads. So you can find that at SoundCloud and search for Crit Heads, Crit Heads being all one word. So with that said, thank you for joining us and have a good morning or evening or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.